0: You're now listening to the Bar Stars podcast, where we explore health, longevity, and performance. I'm your host, Edward Chekow, and we'll be diving deeper into topics I've been studying for the last 10 years as a catastatics expert. So I met Dr. Sean after being invited on his podcast. I was dealing with a shoulder injury at the time, and it was like heaven sent. I was debating getting an MRI to see what's up, and Sean suggested I just come over and see if he could help me. And if he couldn't, he would send me off to get an MRI. At this point, this is my second comeback from the shoulder injury I've talked about on YouTube. I got treated in Miami by a great therapist who kind of massaged it back to health, but after coming back and doing some long endurance muscle upsets with the guys, it just kind of fell out. I blame it on these past failure reps where my form deteriorated, but I kept going because of peer pressure. If you're listening, don't fall victim for that. I went to see Sean out in Long Island and he assessed me, did what I would describe as a pressure point routine, but Sean could probably describe it a lot better, and he does in his podcast. And finally he had me do some workouts. Now I was shocked. I didn't think this was it. I was scared. He had me doing upright rolls, shoulder presses, movements I'd never done before. There was pain, but Sean was there the whole time guiding me. I remember him telling me if the pain isn't increasing, I shouldn't worry about it. It was like going against everything I ever heard before. But I listened. I learned and I kept going with it and you wouldn't believe me, but I got much, much better. I started incorporating a one day a week with the exercises Sean showed me like the kettlebell press up and the shoulder upright row. And I trained it heavy and controlled. My shoulder has improved drastically and it's thanks to Sean. So in this episode, we talk about Sean's methods and philosophy on treating sports related injuries and his beliefs on different alternative treatment. Hope you enjoy. Start off with uh, your background as, as far as uh, rehab related.
1: So, I got started back in two thousand two thousand four is when I first started being a personal trainer for people because essentially I went to University of Maryland, thought I was gonna be a pro baseball player. I was wrong about that. That didn't work out. I'm not playing pro ball. I got cut from the team at Maryland. I got cut from the team and the coach told me it was because I was too small. I asked him what skills I needed to work on. You know, how do I get like what do I need to be better at so I could be on this team? He's like, it's not your skills, it's it's your size. We just don't have room for a guy on the team your side. I'm like, that doesn't that doesn't sit well with me, right? That was freshman year of college. So I wanted to learn everything that there was to learn about exercise so I could get jacked. Now, you know me, so either I didn't learn enough or I didn't do it enough because I didn't get that jacked. But the point being, I got a lot of education on what it means to actually change your your anatomy, change your physiology through exercise. And in 2004, I started doing personal training at the Rexon University of Maryland. My father was a chiropractor. My uncle was a chiropractor. They wanted me to go to, you know, they didn't want me to, but they knew that if I was going to be in the health and fitness space, I might as well be a doctor. So because they said that, I pushed back and took the whole year after school off. And I just worked as a personal trainer. Got really good at that. And I would constantly take my personal training clients upstairs to the physical therapy suite at the Equinox where I was training. And I'd be like, hey, what do I do with this guy whose shoulder hurts? They're like, oh, if it it bothers him, just work around it. I'm like, okay. What do I do with this woman whose low back is bothering her? If it hurts her, just just work around it. Do things that don't hurt. Okay, what do I do with this person? Same answer. I'm like, none of this is groundbreaking. I do not want to be limited in my scope by this much that I just have to not do it. So I went to chiropractic school, graduated chiropractic school, and frankly, didn't like being a chiropractor, not the traditional type. So I got more education and became a soft tissue specialist who could prescribe exercise and adjust patients. And that's about the time that I met you, Ed. That's when you came into my clinic is when I opened my own spot with my own gym, was treating patients uh, the way I wanted to. I was enjoying that. And people were flying into the office, man, from... Spain. We had a patient fly in from Finland, from Brazil, from Australia, from California, Nevada, and eventually got to the point that I was just like, I have more fun finding these people and drawing them in than I do treating them on a regular basis. So I got to get out of the clinic, and that's my background.
0: Nice. So how long have you been practicing after you became a chiropractor?
1: So I did chiropractic. A I did chiropractic for about nine years. I had I worked in my parent, my dad's clinic, my uncle's clinic. Then I had my own clinic. Then I had a second clinic, and eventually, what happens is, like anything else, when you reach a certain level of of success, if you will, in a single craft, it becomes boring. At least it did for me. Like it was just at this point, it was like the house was built. I don't mean the house I live in. I'm talking about the proverbial house. You know, like you build your dream house, whatever. The dream house, which is the dream career, right? It was built. The money was coming in. The patients were coming in. I was working for myself, owned the gym, everything was was easy at this point. The problem is, there was nothing there was nowhere else to go. So I just got bored, you know, repainting walls that didn't need to be repainted in in the proverbial house. So it was about 9 years in clinic and then I just decided that I needed to move on to bigger things.
0: How much how small is too small for baseball?
1: I was 135 pounds in the freshman year of college.
0: That's pretty small. 5'8", five,
1: five, 135 pounds.
0: Did you work I was like, pre- but di- dude, what? Did you work predominantly with athletes?
1: Do I? Yeah, I mean, right now, almost, let me backtrack. Almost all of our clients are an athlete of sort. That doesn't mean they're professional athletes. I mean, we've worked with professional athletes. We've worked with Olympians. We've worked with, you know, studs like you. But people don't. there aren't that many people who are like that in the world. And believe it or not, people who are like that don't pay a lot of money for their services. They understand the value of their likeness being leveraged so that other people will come in. And so they don't want to spend a bunch of money on it. And um, you can't make a career working with just the elite unless if you are an outlier in your space. Right? Like there, are, there are people in every space who can do it, but they're the outlier. And there's, there's too much chance in politicking to get there that I wasn't interested in doing that. So most of our clients are everyday people who have athletic ambitions, meaning they want to be able to do a pull-up. They want to be able to go to the park and not be like, I got to skip that today because this hurts. They want to be able to just do what they want to do. And because of the way that we work with people, they have to be willing to be active. So we, we attract an athletic population.
0: So a lot of people, when you hear injury, the first thing you think is rest, and and for the most part, that solves a lot of problems. But then you have injuries like the one I had, where resting the longer I rested, it didn't get any better. And I feel like mm-hmm. when I met you, you had a, a more proactive alternative approach than just resting. Now, could you speak on yeah. that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So resting works to solve what's called an acutely inflammatory condition. What that means is. If you hurt yourself today, you need to rest it 24, 48, 72 hours, sometimes even up to two weeks. After that, unless if you've been put into a splint, cast, had a surgery, whatever the case might be, it's very likely that rest is not getting you closer to where you want to be. And the longer that you rest, the less you are able to do when you return. So it's a double-edged sword, right? Let's say, Ed, you were doing 100 pull-ups a day, as an example. That would be 500 pull-ups a week if you did a Monday through Friday. And then you hurt your shoulder, so you're not allowed to do pull-ups. You can't do pull-ups, it hurts too bad. So for eight weeks, you do zero pull-ups, right? Your shoulder feels better. Now you wanna go back to doing pull-ups again. You're likely gonna wanna do 100 because you've done it before. Or even you might say, I'm going to do 40 or 50 because that was easy before. But the reality is you've been off for eight weeks. You're not even ready to do 40 or 50. You got to start with like 20. And you got to stay at like 20 for four weeks until your body has become acclimated to that. And then we can add more and more and more. So the reason why I'm talking so deeply on how to return from that is because it's important that you understand that, The more you rest, the more you have to rest after you're done, the less you can do. So if we are resting for too long, we're causing two problems. One, we're not fixing the original problem. Two, we're creating the need to rest more long term. So when I see somebody like you, at it was very simple to me. You were lacking some range of motion in your shoulder, which we were able to get in there manually, do some hands-on work to fix it, and then because of your your... Livelihood you were really good at pulling down pulling your body weight up right pulling down on a bar but the opposite wasn't true you couldn't pull up on a bar very well you couldn't pull your hand from your waist to your shoulder well you can press extremely well overhead so it was important that we built some dynamic strength to balance out your ability to pull down and then your team was able to go away
0: actually since uh, since I met you I've incorporated a uh... A one day a week, right, I hit heavy on my shoulders, kind of like a, a bodybuilding split. But my to go back to the question, I meant like sometimes you rest and then you come back and you're still able to do 20 plus. But in my case, even resting for however long, I, I think it was over a month, I came back and I still was able to do zero. Like I still had maybe 90% of the exact same pain I had uh, when right. I first took off. Is that common? So I,
1: I see what you're asking. Um, what you're asking me is more, how does somebody know if they should rest or not? Yeah. Right? Okay. So when you, when you rest, you should get better essentially every day. You should be noticeably better every day. And then when you haven't had any pain at all for, let's call it two days in a row, get back up and test it. Just see, hang there. Don't even do a pull-up. Does it feel at all off to hang there? Yes. Okay. Rest a little bit longer. Jump back like up on the bar 2 days later. Does it feel the same as it did 2 days ago or does it feel a little bit better? Feels the same. Great. You've reached the maximum therapeutic benefit of resting. And now it's time to figure out why you're not getting any better. Right so an example I like to give to people is you ever seen like a well a ruler? You've seen a ruler, right? If you hold a ruler in, in, your, in between your index finger and your thumb, and we put a rock on the end of the ruler, the far end the other way, it feels kind of heavy, right? So if if the way that your shoulder is built is such that you're really good at one thing, like pulling up on a bar, and not as good at the other, which is pulling down on a bar, for example, or pulling the bar up to you, the rock is out of balance. It's as far away on the ruler as it possibly can be. Follow me? Yep. As you start to build balance in your shoulder, we're essentially moving that rock closer to your fingers. So now what's happening is you're not making the rock any lighter. The rock is the same weight. But you are putting yourself in a better mechanical position to be able to hold the rock. The way that that goes into the world for someone who's doing something like you do with the the, um, the I was going to call it kinesthetics, but it's not kinesthetics. Who is doing yeah, calisthenics? Calisthenics. Thank you. Jeez. Someone who's doing calisthenics for their fitness modality is if they get really good at one thing, that part of the body is going to get used a lot, and so resting it doesn't do you any good when you go back to doing it you're still going to compensate and use it the way that you built your body to do it. But that's not necessarily good for the joint. So strengthening muscles on the other side of the same joint can be really beneficial. And that makes it so that you use that side less.
0: Have you seen a lot of calisthenics athletes outside of me? No. But you've seen a lot of CrossFit athletes. You're a CrossFit uh, owner at one point, right?
1: I was. We've seen a lot of CrossFit athletes. We've seen a lot of gymnasts. So, I mean, gymnasts are as close to a calisthenic athlete as, as there's going to be outside of someone who's actually in the park doing pull-ups and tricks and things like that.
0: What are some of the common injuries you've seen in gymnasts?
1: Very similar to what you guys experience. You know, They're dealing with a lot of shoulder pain that they get on the top of their shoulder when they bring their arms over their head. They get it on the whole shoulder the longer they hang from the bar. When they do things like kipping, which I know for you guys, it's like, no, no, no. Kipping is, that's like a mortal sin. I, I understand that. For them, when they're doing things like getting their momentum to swing around a high bar, for example, they're fine. But then as they stay on longer, they start to get what's called traction pain down their hand into their pinky and their ring finger because the nerves in the shoulder are getting tugged on so much for so long that that starts to happen. Uh, They have neck injuries from slamming their head into the ground over and over and over again. And they oftentimes have low back injury or low back discomfort because of what the finishing position is supposed to look like. When they basically tilt their pelvis forward, stick their butt in the air, arch their back, put their hands in the air, that's that's a really bad position for the body to be in. So those are the things we're often managing for tumors.
0: What are your common recommendations usually when it comes to that?
1: The same, the same as you. Same as for you. It's, let's figure out what muscles are strong. And let's figure out what muscles are weak. And let's strengthen the ones that are weak by comparison to the ones that are strong in the same in the same joint. So. Here's the thing, Ed, somebody like you, somebody like a world-class gymnast, somebody like an Olympic weightlifter who medals in the Olympics are all examples of people who we've had come through our clinic and through our company remotely online. And the first thing it's important for us to explain to somebody at that level is you are not going to live a pain-free life and perform at the level that you want to perform at. The reason for that is sports are inherently unsafe. Right? We're, we're pushing the margin of our body's ability to function. So it's to be expected that we're going to push it too far, experience some discomfort, have to back off, build capacity, and then push it again. For the everyday person, that's not necessary. right? So when we work with a world-class gymnast or when we work with an Olympic athlete who wins medals in the Olympics, we tell them, you have to do this for your sport that is going to drive some discomfort that's the price you pay for being world-class
0: yeah i agree fully i think no if you want to be the top of any sport you you have to get to the point the range where you risk injury because that's that's how you push the, the boundary the record
1: it's the same in business man if you want to be the top of your business you have to be willing to push the envelope to the point that some of your relationships may suffer and then when you figure that out it's like okay well how do i how do I better balance my life so that my relationships don't suffer, and neither does my business? But you have to get to the point of them suffering to figure that out.
0: What's your opinion on myofascial uh, manipulation? So you hear sometimes that you could break stuff up. You hear other times that you can't. You can only manipulate, like move it.
1: So the answer to that is a complicated one. The, the simple answer is it works. The more complicated one is it works when the practitioner is good at it. And I don't think most practitioners are good at it. And that's why people were flying out to see us at our clinic, because we were really good at it. The example that one of my my previous mentors likes to use is, because um, people will say there's no such thing as adhesion in a muscle that can be manipulated by a person's hands and make a lasting change. Now, you know better because we did it together. I know better because I've done it with thousands of people. But people will ask, for the research. Where's the research? Where's the research? There's plenty of research that I am not the right person to direct you to because I'm much more of an ask forgiveness than permission kind of guy. I'm not I'm not here to validate anybody's concerns about the way I do things if we're helping people. That said, the example my mentor used to use was if you stood outside of a Walmart and every person who came up you gave a golf club and a golf ball to. And you said I want you to hit this golf ball onto that green a hundred yards away with this club. And you just let a hundred people swing it as they walked up. The likelihood is your random sample of a hundred people walking up to Walmart, one or two, or maybe three would put it on the green. Right? So it could be justifiably said that a golf club and a golf ball are not well-matched to be able to put that ball on that green at this distance with any kind of reliability, right? But the problem is we're evaluating people showing up at fucking Walmart. If we go to the PGA Tour and test 100 people in a perfect environment, 90 of them put the ball on the green. So what I'm aiming to say here is that all doctors are not created equal. And there are some who do a great job at manipulating soft tissue. And there are some who just rub a bunch of stuff and hope it feels better. So it works when it's done well. And for your listeners, they can find uh, a good doctor near them, most likely at integrative diagnosis.com. I don't own that site. I don't make money when people go to that site. I don't have a referral link. It's just a database of really good soft tissue. Do
0: they screen them?
1: Yeah. So in order to be a doctor on that, on that, that listing, you have to go through extensive education on specifically manipulating soft tissue. Identifying the tissue that needs to be manipulated and then manipulating it effectively.
0: And that they have uh, practitioners worldwide?
1: They do, they're a smaller network than something like Active Release Techniques, which is activerelease.com. The the thing is I've, I've gone through both educations, and activerelease.com will find you a more convenient doctor to go to. Uh, I just think that their methodology is far less specific, less advanced, and less effective than integrative diagnosis. Having what's well,
0: something, well, something someone could expect when they visit uh, a specialist in, in that field?
1: Discomfort. You know, um, more like so,
0: specific. It's like drawing your fingers into the.
1: Yeah, so so what they're going to feel essentially is what you're asking We're Like, what what are they going to? What's the treatment going to be like? A good doc is going to evaluate your range of motion before they work with you at all. What hurts and then measure it. Exactly what range of motion are we at before we're experiencing discomfort? Great. What's the full range of motion that we can get to even with discomfort? Great. Got it. Then they are going to make a they're going to make an educated decision about which structures might be the ones that are limiting range of motion based on their experience and the anatomy surrounding the joint. So, for example, if you're trying to bring your arms over your head like you do in a jumping jack, right, and you're limited in doing it, there are only seven, eight tissues, seven or eight muscles that are responsible for limiting that range of motion. So they're going to go in and start palpating, which is feeling around with their thumbs on those tissues. And when they cross-reference that range of motion with a different range of motion, they can limit that number down to even three muscles. Now they go feel those tissues and a doctor who's well-trained and well experienced can feel the difference between a functional muscle and a dysfunctional muscle. And on the dysfunctional muscle, they can actually find the very specific spot that is dysfunctional on that muscle. And then what they do is they take that muscle through a full range of motion and they put pressure and tension on the area where that muscle is dysfunctional to break up the adhesion that's stuck in that muscle. That's an uncomfortable process. Good docs will measure range of motion before and right after treatment. Then they will ask you to do nothing for a day or two. Come back into your next visit and they will measure the range of motion again before they touch you again to make sure that you've had a lasting result that was measurable. That's how they know if what they did last time worked. So assess, treat, Assess, rest, assess, treat.
0: To put together some of the things we just spoke about, so let's say I just have an injury. I rest for two days, see if the injury is still there. If it is, rest another two days. Then at this point, I start looking for a doctor or do I start trying to balance out the muscles through uh, the exercise I've been neglecting?
1: I think that if you're going to try to balance out the muscles, it's important to know how to balance out the muscles. I think that most people who are going to do that are going to have very limited expertise on what that is and how to do that. That's what, I mean, we've spent the last five years crafting, becoming the best in the world at doing that for people at scale. So I'll give your listeners some simple things that they can wrap their minds around, that they can start doing, that they don't need to hire us to help them with. Let's say, to answer your question first, it's never bad to see a doctor. It's often bad to take whatever the doctor says at face value and just listen to it a hundred percent you got to ask questions right so if you go to a doctor's office and they don't give you the answer that you want it still might be the right answer but it might be the wrong answer you got to keep looking
0: let me interrupt you real quick would you suggest people go to a medical doctor like a family doctor first or skip that step entirely if it's a workout related injury
1: Skip that step entirely if it's a workout related injury Find yourself a really good physical therapist. Find yourself a really good chiropractor. Go to integrativediagnosis.com and find them there if you can. That's what I would recommend. Um, you want to avoid as much as you can falling into the population who are taking medications for their discomfort. Right? You 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 can't unmedicate. You've already taken it. Your liver has to process that stuff. Every medication has side effects. Unnecessary if it's unnecessary. Um, you want to avoid surgery whenever you can. You can't unoperate. You want to avoid um, resting for too long whenever you don't need to be resting because that's when the false narrative starts creeping in. I have a bad shoulder. I have a bad shoulder. I have a bad shoulder. You don't have a bad shoulder. You just haven't done what's necessary yet to fix it. Does does that make sense, Ed? So simple math for you guys. Uh, Let's say you weigh 200 pounds. Every pull-up that you do, so you grab a pull-up bar, do a strict pull-up, Which means dead hang, chin over the bar, lower yourself back down to a dead hang. For every one of those that you can do, you should be able to take a 65 pound dumbbell and pull it from your waist to your armpit. Right? So stand tall, pull a dumbbell 65 pounds from your waist to your armpit, leading with your elbow to the sky, like you're zippering a coat. For every pull up that you can do, you should be able to do one, high pull, which is the exercise we just described, with 65 pounds. If you weigh, 200 pounds. It's one third of your body weight. You should also be able to press 65 pounds overhead with one hand. The same number of reps that you were able to do strict pull-ups. So, take your body weight, number of pull-ups you're able to do strict. Divide your body weight by a third you should be able to take that much weight and high pull it on one side for the same number of reps and press it for the same number of reps. And your left arm and your right arm should be within one, max two reps of each other for all movement. high pulls and pressing. If those numbers line up and you have full range of motion, you probably won't have shoulder pain from pull ups or calisthenics.
0: Me personally, when I worked with uh, Sean, And Active Life Rx, uh, I got the advice of uh, incorporating high single arm upright rows and uh, Mm -hmm. single arm shoulder presses. And after doing that once a week, uh, like really heavy, I really feel my shoulder much better. And I'm actually feeling my shoulder again now because gyms are closed. So I've been working out exclusively at the park. And it's really Mm -hmm. hard to mimic that movement. I've been incorporating handstand push-ups and keeping in mind to do that. uh, But it's really hard to mimic upright row in the park.
1: Yeah, it's really hard. You got to go get yourself a dumbbell, man.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, when I met Sean, I told him I would do these exercises. And the exercises I showed him I was doing was, like, really light resistance uh, stuff that you not uh, commonly see, which I think is great for a warm-up from time to time. But I definitely felt the difference after, like, training, like, for, for heavy weight.
1: Well, and what you're talking about is the things that people do with like two and a half pound weights and rubber bands and five pound weights that that really is just, like you said, get their shoulder warmed up. And that stuff comes from physical therapy and it works really well. But what people need to remember is that the role of physical therapy, physical therapy school is all based on what's called ADL. ADL represents activities of daily living. So essentially insurance companies dictate the education, by dictating what they'll pay for. You follow? So if I'm a physical therapist, the reason I'm going to physical therapy school or chiropractic school is not because I want to help people. I do. But it's because I want to get paid for helping people. Right? Now, that's not to say that doctors are all in it for the money. What I'm describing is the reason that you spend $200,000 in three to four years on education is because there's a strong likelihood that you're going to be able to make that money back on the other side. Follow? So what happens now is insurance companies say, well, once somebody reaches maximum therapeutic benefit, we're going to stop paying. Okay. What is maximum therapeutic benefit? Well, once they can complete all of their ADLs, they've reached maximum therapeutic benefit. Okay. Well, what classifies as an ADL? Being able to go to work. Being able to drive your car. Being able to wipe your butt, being able to sleep through the night, being able to wash your hair. These are ADLs. What is not an ADL? Being able to do a pull-up, being able to go to the gym, being able to throw your kid up in the air and catch them. These are not ADLs. So insurance companies stop paying physical therapy and chiropractic once ADLs have been met. That doesn't mean that people's livelihoods are restored. So the education in the schools largely ends at restoring ADLs. That's why doctors are ill-equipped oftentimes to help somebody like you or other Bar Stars athletes or any, any athlete really to get back to their sport because they're not trained to do it in school. They have to seek that education afterwards and they have to immerse themselves in it afterwards if they want to be good at it. Uh,
0: what's your thoughts on acupuncture, cupping, and other alternative uh, therapies that you hear promoted?
1: I don't know enough to draw a really scientific or even just anecdotal opinion on acupuncture and cupping and things like that that would be any kind of a standard of care opinion. Like, what I'm going to tell you now is my personal experience. It does not mean that um, it represents how these things work. I find acupuncture to be especially interesting because it's, it's it's almost like left brain, right brain from what I'm used to. You know, it's like, it's, it's clearing up things that you can't see, things that you really can't measure very well. And there are entire societies that go to the acupuncturist first. Like that's the first line of defense. If you're in China, you're not going to, you know, the chiropractor to adjust you, you're going to the acupuncturist first. Like that's, that's just medicine, you follow? And I love the idea of using herbs and, and spices and food as medicine, as opposed to using medicine as medicine. So for those reasons, I'm a, I'm a fan of acupuncture. How acupuncture uses cupping, I don't fully understand, but I respect it. How acupuncture uses something like washa, which is scraping muscles. I do fully understand. And sometimes I think it makes sense and sometimes I don't. Where I think we get carried away is in extrapolating what happens in a really good acupuncture clinic and then bastardizing it for the sake of nostalgia, if you will, or association. And so what I mean by that is when people get cupping and they come out with all these bruises on their back, right, from the cupping. And you ask, why, what was the value of that? And the doctor's like, oh, we want to restore blood flow to the area. That's not what acupuncture does. That's not what acu- That's not why acupuncture does cupping. It has nothing to do with blood flow to the area. It's about chi. It's about the flow of energy. So we have taken the Western medicine methodology and married it with the eastern medicine methodology and justify it with half truths and that's where i think that it becomes dangerous and ineffective
0: what do you do you think acupuncture has like a a benefit strictly physically
1: what do you mean strictly physical
0: like a, as opposed to you mentioned the left brain and the right brain how about just releasing tension from the muscle or relieving any pain from the from yeah the i energy? think it
1: can I think you can. I think that um, my big thing is, if you have an active problem, you need an active solution. If you have a passive problem, you might need a passive solution. Acupuncture is a passive solution.
0: Can you give an example like, of a passive problem and an active problem?
1: Yeah. I have shoulder pain all the time. I don't want to be. I don't want to exercise. I'm not looking to be a bar star. I'm not looking to do you know, crazy pull-ups on the on, on the pull-up bar. I just want to be able to change the channel and wipe my ass. That's a fairly passive problem. You don't need a lot of capacity to do that. Acupuncture might solve it. But now it's like, okay, I want to be able to throw heavy weight around. I want to be able to swing around a bar. I want to be able to do a stair-step pull-up. You're not getting, I don't think you're getting that with acupuncture alone.
0: You mentioned readjusting. Uh, what's your opinion on, on readjusting? Because me personally, I've had really great experiences and I've also had uh, oversold experiences.
1: I think it's almost oversold all the time. It's almost always oversold. And, and, and what I mean by that is I believe that adjustments have value. I get adjusted. I used to give adjustments. Um, I like them. I think that the value is far less than it's sold to be. And the reason why it's sold to be that way is because it is the thing that sets chiropractors apart from physical therapists, massage therapists, and whatnot. And so if that becomes devalued, then so do chiropractors in their own mind. I don't believe that that's the reality. I think that if it it becomes clear of what it's good for, it actually becomes more valuable when you use it, if that makes sense to you. So times that I believe adjustments are extremely valuable, I've had patients come in with what I will call, and I will quote it and make sure I'm not being literal about this, a rib out, right? So, the, the rib is not sitting the way that it's meant to sit in the joint. I have popped those back in for people, and they go from not being able to breathe to feeling 100% in half a second. Um, similarly to something called the meniscoid, which is when you can move really quick, and a piece of cartilage that lives between your bones and your spine can unfold and fold back up really quickly and get stuck. And if that happens, an adjustment frees that up really quick and they go from being extremely painful to being 100% in just a moment. I have helped people with their sinuses by doing what's called cranial adjustments, which is literally moving the bones of the skull and then doing upper cervical adjustments, and watch their noses start to run immediately afterwards. The cervical adjustment creates a, a nervous system response Cranial adjustments create the space, and all of a sudden, runny nose, and they can breathe again. So, there is value to getting those adjustments when the treatment fits the problem. The problem is when the adjustment becomes the fix all for everything, which it's not. Again, it's a passive modality for potentially an active problem, which doesn't work.
0: There's a couple of videos going viral on Instagram of people like uh, uh, setting up what looks like a like a belt, not a belt exactly, but it looks like a belt, a strap kind of around someone's head, and then yeah, the neck hammock, and then they like pull it. Is there is yeah. there any is there could you explain some situations if if any where that should be used?
1: Avoid that. Avoid that. Uh, if, if if a doctor is not doing it for you, avoid that. And if a doctor is doing that for you question that a lot i'm not saying it's never good i'm saying it's rarely good and it can it can often cause damage that's unnecessary takes a long term to to repair and could be avoided
0: it looks scary as fuck. yeah have you ever done one of those or had it done to you
1: i without watching the video that you're describing I can only guess that what you're talking about is essentially like fast and aggressive traction, which is like pulling somebody by their their chin and their head and trying to basically pull their head off perfectly vertically. Um, The answer to that question is yes, I have done that with people. Um, When done well, it can be very effective. When done too aggressively, it can be very dangerous. I've probably done that on average once a quarter in my professional career. So if I saw patients for nine years, I probably did that, what, 36 times? Total.
0: What are the situations you felt like you had to use that method?
1: When there was strong restriction of an upper cervical vertebrae, what that means is essentially their their skull and the, the, the neck bones that are closest to the skull were living too closely to each other. And we needed to create a, a momentary gap to change what's called proprioception, the body's understanding of where it is in space. Pull, and then allow the body to reset itself. That's what it's for. It's not to, we're not making anybody taller with that.
0: Do you think there's ever a situation where someone should visit a, a chiropractor monthly? Because I, I know people that have it like as part set at their, their routine.
1: I don't mind it. You know, it's, it's, here's the thing. I see going to a chiropractor monthly as, as similar to having insurance. Going to a chiropractor monthly, the idea is you're believing that having your, your spine manipulated increases proprioception, self-awareness to the area that's getting manipulated. There may be a nerve that comes out of that area, right? And so if your body wasn't aware that there was a problem going on with your nerve, we bring more attention to it with the adjustment, and now your body can fix the problem, all the problems that that nerve innervate. I think that's a bit far-fetched. I also don't think that it's completely outlandish. So for me, because of what it costs to go see a chiropractor, if it's something that you value, go do it. I don't believe any harm is being done.
0: But there are dangers to, to, to being. What, what do you call a visit? Readjustment every time? Or
1: no, nah, there's no danger to getting adjusted every month. I mean, remember this: when 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 we were in chiropractic school, we knew nothing about nothing. And we adjusted each other and people don't get messed up like the, the, um, the risks of an adjustment are so wildly overblown by the media and by people who have uh, either suffered it or think they suffered it that it scares people unnecessarily. Like I believe that a cervical adjustment, an upper neck adjustment is perfectly safe provided that you do the appropriate screen before. Many people who get strokes after an adjustment, for example, Ed, were already having a stroke before they had the adjustment. And the chiropractor missed it in their evaluation, and they adjusted the patient anyway and exacerbated the stroke that they were having. That happens when chiropractors aren't careful. But there are study after study after study after study that demonstrate that people's necks are put into a more precarious position getting their hair washed at the salon than getting adjusted by a chiropractor. And we're not we're not raising flags about going to the salon.
0: Have you heard about babies being adjusted?
1: Yeah, I adjust my kids. I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a seventeen-month-old, and adjusted the 17 months old, almost within minutes of coming out of my, my wife. And then we did, you know, fairly regularly for the first few months, just it, it's different though. You're not expecting a cavitation. You're not expecting the noise and the popping and the, the aggressive movement. It's in that case, it, it's almost just kind of gently pressing bones in the direction that they're supposed to go to make sure that they get used to moving that direction.
0: All right. Switching topics. Um, can I present to you some common injuries I know, and then you could walk us through uh, some, some things people should do? be happy to. Uh, tennis elbow, from doing specifically from doing a lot of pull-ups.
1: It's unlikely somebody would have tennis elbow from doing a bunch of pull-ups. And I'll tell you why, and then we can go into what to do if, if they're having what I think you're describing. Tennis elbow is what's called an extension-based issue. So it comes from the backhand in tennis. So think about holding a tennis racket in your right hand, for example, and backhanding over the net. It's elbow extension and wrist extension at the same time. Follow? Yeah. We don't do elbow extension or wrist extension when we do pull-ups except to let ourselves down. And when we're letting ourselves down, all of that tension is on the opposite side of the elbow, the inside of the elbow, the side that's closer to the ribs. Follow? That's medial epicondylitis, we call that golfer's elbow. Now, you might get both. You might have both. I'm not saying you can't get one from calisthenics. I'm just describing it's less likely. The best way to solve for that is, first and foremost, if it's acute, which means you've had it for less than two weeks, rest it. Rest it. Let's see if the the inflammation goes away. Then we have to figure out what your workload looks like. Did you do too much too fast? Or did you, did you gradually build this over time? And if you did too much too fast, it's really easy to fix. A little bit of rest, let the inflammation go away. And then you have to scale way back the amount of work that you're doing and spend time building your durability. So what I mean by that is, let's say you're doing 100 pull-ups a day, Ed. 500 pull-ups a week. If you were doing nothing before and you went to 100 pull-ups a day, I would recommend to you that we're going to scale all the way back to 20 pull-ups a day. You went from zero to 500. That's too much. We're going to go from zero to 20% of that. And we're going to stay at that for for four weeks to really build a good base. Then we're going to increase by 30% if you had no pain. So now we're going to go to 27 pull-ups a day. We're going to stay there for two weeks. Then we're going to increase by 30% again. We're going to go 36 pull-ups a day. And people don't like this because they're like, that takes way too long. I can't do that. It's a tortoise in the hair. We all know what happens to the hair, right? Yeah. Burns out, doesn't finish the race. So you've got to be patient with it. Now, somebody like you who's more experienced, who's been doing this for a long time, was getting that discomfort. What we now need to be looking at is where the... Where are the disbalances? Where is your strength imbalance? Why is your elbow so taxed? How do we fix that? We got to fix the strength imbalance. Then at the same time, it's what's going on at the tendon level? Is it generating? Okay. We got to put that under eccentric load. So eccentric load is a lengthening contraction. What that means is your biceps are on eccentric loading when you lower yourself down from doing a pull-up under control. As the muscle stays on tension and lengthens, that's called an eccentric contraction. Tendons love eccentric contraction. So someone who does calisthenics is likely to spend much of their time on the concentric, the pulling motion. You need to take at least one day a week and spend it on just the eccentric stuff or tendon health. It's a frustrating day because you're not going to get better at pull ups that day. You're not going to get stronger that day. You're not going to feel like you worked that hard that day. The purpose of that day is only pretend to know.
0: Eccentric would be the negative of the exercise, correct? Yes, sir. So on that day, would you suggest that they they still perform the positive coming up and then just really focusing on going slow or skip the positive altogether and like, you know, jump up with a chair or a band?
1: So, so. It depends on if they're asymptomatic or like if we're talking about somebody who's asymptomatic and they just want to keep injury away, do the positive too. There's a there's a type of exercise called heavy, slow resistance training. That's a three-second positive and a four-second negative on every single rep. You have to be able to do at least 15 reps and three sets your first time that you do this. So what that means for somebody doing pull-ups is it's likely they're going to need some assistance. Because 15 pull-ups at that kind of tempo is, that's brutal. So the assistance should be such that every rep feels like an 8 out of 10 difficulty, 8 out of 10 RPE. And the pain that you experience should be below a 5 out of 10. That would be the thing that I would recommend all of your asymptomatic followers, clients, whatever we want to call them today. That's what they need to do. For people who are symptomatic, they need to be uh, they need to be avoiding they need to be doing that more than once a week, two to three times a week, and then avoiding anything that's what we call cyclical rotation or cyclic reps. Cyclic reps are any rep that they do that does not include the eccentric phase. So nothing that is fast moving that doesn't include tension in the in the eccentric negative.
0: Let's say my wrist hurt from doing handstands
1: what would you suggest? Figuring out why your wrist hurts. Is it the back of your wrist or the front of your wrist? Like the palmar side or the back back of your wrist? So the thing about the wrist that's tricky is there are eight bones in there called your carpal bone. And they float around with each other. And if the muscles of the forearm are too stiff or the muscles of the back of the forearm are too stiff, they can compress those bones. And so bringing your hand back and doing a handstand might hurt in the back of the wrist. But it might be a problem with starting in the front. So we have a test that we use that you can find on our YouTube channel that shows how to do a wrist extension test to make sure that you have appropriate range of motion in your wrist. It will also help you identify if the problem in the wrist is coming from the front side of the forearm or the back side of the forearm. Once we know the answer to that, the correction for it is either going to be time under tension if it's a muscular problem, or excuse me, eccentric contraction. If it's a muscular problem, or it's going to be time under tension. If it's a ligament problem. What are do you doing?
0: Suction for your your
1: wrist. E- How do I do eccentric? So you can rest your hand, your forearm on your knee. Put a weight in your hand. Use your other hand to pull the weight up, and and curl your wrist, and then allow your hand to open up with the weight all the way to the fingertips and use your other hand to kind of support. So that when you drop the weight, you catch it in the other hand, put it back up into the top. Do the same thing with the elbow extended. You could do pull-ups where you jump up onto the bar at the top and just lower yourself down. Another example.
0: What's your opinion on price? Protect, rest, ice, compress, and elevate. Would you, is that what you recommend during the rest stage or no?
1: I don't recommend the ice part. because the ice part to me is, is it just doesn't make any sense. You're going through an inflammatory process because your body wants inflammation to be there. If you ice it and try to drive inflammation away, I don't think it does you any good. Plus, most studies show that ice doesn't go any deeper than like half of an inch in terms of changing the actual temperature of the tissue. So you're not going to get to the muscle. Again, I'm good with it for two weeks. If after two weeks nothing's changing, it, nothing's going to change.
0: So you think the rest period that you suggest... Because I I thought before you said uh, two days and then stop, test two days. You think
1: it It could go up to two days? It was two days asymptomatic. Two consecutive asymptomatic days. Then you can go to the lightest version of the loading that you would do if you wanted to use it. And if that's symptomatic still, then give that two more days. See if it improves. Go back and load that the lightest way you possibly can again. If that hasn't changed, then rest is probably not going to do the job.
0: What's your opinion on wrist wraps and, uh, let's say, wrapping your knees, wrapping your elbows?
1: Uh for sport, it's great. I think it's very smart
0: as a way to mask your injury.
1: Mistake. You know, when we work with with athletes who tell us I I I can only lift weights if I wear my belt my back brace, we tell them that then you haven't earned the right to lift weight. So it's the same with you guys. Like if you can't do a pull up without a wrist brace. Without a wrist brace because it hurts too bad, you shouldn't be doing pull ups.
0: I agree. I think it's a, like a stepping stone, but you have to address the injury as soon as you can. 100%. Okay, cool. Um, let us know about your website, Active Life RX.
1: So, we're in the process of overhauling the website because it needs to speak better to the kind of people who we work with. When you go to the website right now, it looks like we're a CrossFit company and we're not. So, ActiveLifeRx.com is where you would go if you're dealing with some aches and pain that you are finally going to get rid of like you have just tired of it it's been too long enough of this crap time to get rid of it with somebody who understands that i want to get rid of it and do my thing at the same time when you go there you can click you know find out if i'm a fit i forget what it even says on the website but it's very intuitive you you say, I want to find out if I can work with a coach and get my problem solved. When you do that, you schedule a phone call and somebody on our staff will be on the other side of the phone talking to you about what's going on. Either telling you, yes, we can help you or no, you need to go see a doctor. And then we can help you find a doctor in your area if that's what's up. And that's free? That, yeah. Wow. The, the, the thing is, we want people who are going to be calling us to know that if they're going to work with us, that's not going to be free. We can't do what we do for free. And they need to be ready to spend um, more than they're comfortable spending to get this solved. So the average case to take beginning to end costs our clients right around $2,500 from the beginning to the end. But what people don't realize when they hear that number and they're like, oh man, that's a lot of money that makes my elbow pain, is we're not just fixing their elbow pain. We're fixing the way that their shoulder works so they don't end up with shoulder pain in the future. We're fixing their elbow pain so their elbow pain goes away. We're fixing the way that their wrist works so they don't end up with wrist pain in the future. We're evaluating their hips and their low back and their ability to brace so they don't end up with low back pain in the future. So you take all of the things that may have come along and you add up what they would cost you in terms of time out of work, time doing less productive work, time at the doctor's office. Add all those up. And we're saving people money every single day. And we're solving their problem without taking them out of the park.
0: Yeah, if you came to me when I had uh, the peak of my injury and told me the 2500 would be gone, I'd definitely pay it, if not more. Like if you, sure. if you live for your sport, it's so depressing being out with an injury, especially an injury that, that you don't see an end to.
1: Right. And look, that $2,500, that would, that would spread over eight, nine months. And you would you would not come out of the park in those eight or nine months. There would be things that you wouldn't do until you earn the right to do them again, but we would have you in the park the whole time. Perfect. And
0: you give our uh, regular advice on your Instagram page
1: for free all the time. Active life RX on Instagram is always free advice on that page because the thing is this, we understand that not everybody going to work with us. They might as well be educated anyway.
0: Last question. At There's... what point should someone consider surgery?
1: Hmm. <sighs> Well, the question, it depends on the person, but I'll give you some basic rules. If you should be strongly considering surgery if not having surgery right now could lead to long-term permanent damage. So what that means is like, for example, let's say you got a disc that's pressing on a nerve that's been documented by MRI and corroborated by your symptoms down your arm, your numb, whatever it is. If you don't get surgery to get that disc off of that nerve, you could lose the ability to use that arm forever. Time is of the essence. We don't mess with that. Um, if, a, if you start to get like a foot drop, you ever seen someone whose foot is slapping around because they can't lift it and they can't place it, and doctors say we can fix that with surgery, you should probably get that surgery. If The most important question to ask the surgeon before you get surgery is, the outcome I would like from this surgery is this. Will this surgery enable me to get that outcome? And what I mean by that is, if I'm getting shoulder surgery, and I'm a calisthenic athlete, my question to the surgeon is, the reason I would get surgery is because I want to be able to do pull-ups and handstands and tricks after the surgery. I understand there'll be rehab, but I'm getting the surgery so I can go back to doing that stuff. Will the surgery allow me to go back to doing that stuff? If the doctor says no, then you need to reevaluate why are you getting the surgery in the first place? Right. If you don't have pain wiping your ass and changing the channel, and that's all you really care to do, you don't need surgery. But if you, Not getting the surgery is inhibiting your ability to do things in your life. And the surgery will enable you to do them. And you've exhausted, by the way, and you've exhausted all of your conservative options. Then you start thinking about the surgery.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Uh, You guys, check check out ActiveLifeRx.com. Check them on Instagram and all social media pages. Also a brilliant YouTube channel. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. I appreciate it. If you guys enjoyed the podcast, head over to BarStars.com and pick up a piece of merchandise. We have apparel, t-shirts, joggers, sweaters. We also have resistance bands that could also be used for assistance if you're learning calisthenic movements like the front lever, one-arm pull-up, or the muscle-up. Also have different affiliate products on the page. Any purchase goes to supporting the show and making sure we could get out good quality content for you guys. And we hope brings pleasure and value to your life. All right. Peace.